Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk Love. Today, I am joined by Dr. Guy Winch. Guy is a licensed psychologist, author, and keynote speaker. He has given two TED Talks, Why We All Need to Practice Emotional First Aid and How to Fix a Broken Heart. Both have been viewed over 15 million times. Guy is the best-selling author of three books. Today, we are talking about his excellent book, How to Fix a Broken Heart. Heartbreak is a topic that is often misunderstood and trivialized. Today's conversation offers new tools and suggestions for healing from heartbreak. I hope you get so much out of this conversation, just as I did. Enjoy. Welcome to the Let's Talk Love podcast, where we flip the script on outdated narratives and cliches about love and relationships. I'm your host, Robin Ducharme, founder of Real Love Ready. This podcast is for anyone who wants to be better at love, regardless of relationship status. We'll talk about the intimate connections in our lives and the challenges and complexities inherent in those partnerships. Through our no-holds-barred interviews with global experts, we'll gain insight about ourselves and learn new skills to improve our relationships. Because when we learn to love better, we make the world a better place. Are you ready for open and honest conversations about love? Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Let's Talk Love. Today, I am so excited to welcome our guest, who I have been learning from for years, Guy Winch. Dr. Guy Winch. Thank you so much for joining us, Guy. <laughs> it's my pleasure. It really <laughs> it is. Really is um, a huge pleasure. And I've been listening to you and Lori on Dear Therapist um, since, and, and, and still all the time, just whenever there's a new episode, I'm listening to it and learning. And I mean, I love your humor and the work you're doing is very powerful and important. And you just have such an awesome approach. And today we're going to be talking about how to fix a broken heart, your book that you wrote and the, the TED talk that you have um, that you gave that has been have like millions and millions and millions of people have watched it and listened to it. Um, so we're going to dive into your book and all the lessons in there because we've all experienced heartbreak more than once in our lives, might most likely, right? Yes, so. probably, <laughs> probably almost everyone has or knows somebody who has. That's for sure. So thank you for thank you so much for joining joining me today. I really really appreciate it. <laughs> It's really my pleasure, and I'm happy to have the discussion, and I'm happy to you know help people get informed at least in yeah. terms of what's going on. So the first question I always ask my guests is a personal question: What in your life is giving you the most joy right now, and what is one of the biggest challenges that you're facing in your life right now? So you know, it's, I'll answer. It's the same thing that's offering the joy and the challenge. Um, yeah, and which is specifically. That for me, I mean, it's a personal question, so I'm answering personally. Um, for me, as a as a psychologist of a private practice, I was always very much tethered to a physical office. In mm -hmm. other words, I couldn't just disappear on vacation for two weeks or something or three weeks because you know I have a practice, I have to be there. So it was mm -hmm. limiting, and that I could go, I would go away quite a bit, but I would go away in short stints. Now, since the pandemic, um, and I have not yet gone back to seeing people in person. That's freed me up to to go and stay, you know, with my uh, twin brother if I wanted to go stay with him for a month or two and go travel here and travel there. And that has been a true joy 
yeah. to be able to feel that I can really go and work from wherever I, I would want to or, you know, wherever I, uh, or for however long I would want to at the moment. Um, the challenge is figuring out how to, you know, come back to the office and at what point to come back to the office. Every time I think, okay, I should go back to the office. I have another session with somebody who starts coughing and going, oh, I just got COVID. And I'm like, and I'm so glad I'm not back in the office. Yes. Because it would be without masks. And so, you know, so um, that's the challenge and the joy at the moment, since you asked us what's what's going on. You know, it's funny when I ask um, my guests this question, so many say that. Their their challenge and joy are just like almost like the same coin. It's flipped, right? They're they're, they're related. So I think that's just fascinating. Yeah. So life is complicated in that way. It, it sure, it sure is. It sure is. So I have, um, I've written down all these quotes and things that you've said that <laughs> that I'm going to be quoting you throughout this interview because there's just so many little gems of wisdom. And I know that you talk about, um, you say, given how ubiquitous heartbreak is, it is remarkable that we know so little about how to heal it. And like how incredibly true is that? And you also talk about, which is another truism, is that like heartbreak is not age dependent. It's like we have this idea that heartbreak is somehow reserved for like a teenager that or a love struck, you know, your college, you have your first deep romantic relationship. But heartbreak is just we all experience it. And it's not age dependent, right? It's not age dependent and it is, you know, remarkable. You know, you said the thing, it's remarkable that it's so ubiquitous, but we know so little about it. Yes. You know, it also is remarkable that it is such a devastating experience emotionally and psychologically. And I didn't learn anything about it in graduate school. There was no. not a, a mention of heartbreak as a separate entity or something that we need to, you know, be very mindful of because it's so devastating. At all ages, indeed. So yes, that, that's a problem in that we, um, we don't take it seriously. And, and I consider it a form of disenfranchised grief. Yes. In the sense that we have grief responses, like we do to real grief, like losing a first-degree relative. Some of our responses to heartbreak are as severe, and we go through a real grieving process. But it's disenfranchised in that we don't take it seriously. No one's going to work saying, oh, yeah, my, my girlfriend dumped me, so I need a week to cry at home. That's not a career move for most people. So, so it's disenfranchised. We don't support it enough. We don't accept it enough. We don't consider it seriously enough. And it's real grief responses for a lot of people. Exactly. So, we, so this is what you do talk about in your TED Talk and in your book. How you give an example of a man, for instance, let's, let's just say he breaks up with his, like his, his partner of three years and he go, you can't just go to your workplace and be like, well, I broke up with somebody, but then again, we should be able to do that. It's just like, this is a very big deal. I'm going through a really hard time in my life right now, but something you do teach in your book and your TED talk is how, um, like we're going through these responses. Like you're not going to be able to work productively, right? Our brains are very much affected. When we're going, our brains and our whole emotional state is affected when we're going through heartbreak. Can you can you go through that on how it affects yes. us in so many different ways? Yes, but so let's let's start here though. What we know from functional brain scan studies is that what the brain looks like when you're experiencing emotional pain of this kind, this kind, is very similar to what the brain looks like when you're experiencing physical pain and actually significant physical pain. 
And we know that because literally there were side-by-side studies in which people, you know, they use a heat inducer on the forearm, they turn it up until you go, "Ah, I can't take it anymore. And then they look to see at what point in the brain does a heart, is a heartbroken person, does their brain look like it looks like when people go, ah, you know, I can't anymore. And And it turns out it's right towards that upper limit of tolerance. In other words, it's real. Um, real pain. It feels like real pain. Now, if you had a really bad toothache or a really bad stomachache or a really devastating migraine, good luck focusing, good luck concentrating, good luck yes. paying attention in a meeting. Pain is yes. very, very distracting. It literally sucks our attentional resources, makes it difficult to focus. When you're heartbroken, that's what you're walking around with all the time. So of course, it's going to be hard to focus. Of course, it's going to be hard to do your best. It's, of course, it's going to be hard to you know, show up at that exact meeting. Maybe you can like figure it out and like take a deep breath and hold it together for a few minutes, but this is day after day all the time. So yes, Mm -hmm. I I, I do say that's something we need to take seriously because our expectation of people that they should be able to function normally when they clearly cannot um, is problematic. Yeah, it absolutely is. So one thing you did, you did talk about just right now is that it's like, if your healing is similar from a physical injury versus an emotional injury, but in our society, and this is what I, I am seeing more and more of us focusing as a society more on mental health, thank goodness, but it's not there yet. It's not even close to comparison, right? And you, you say our bodies heal naturally and without much thought, but our emotional wounds need conscious and continuous effort, focus, and control, Right? And so this is what you are doing in your practice and your work is you're helping people to really, I think what it comes down to it is that we need a lot more training on training, on changing our minds, training our minds to think differently because the automatic response is not working. It's working against us when we're in heartbreak. We act, we act completely differently. We're not, it's not in our own favor. Right? right. Now, there are two layers to that. The, yes. the first layer is the general approach that we have towards emotional pain in general, which is, uh, you know, lift yourself up by your bootstraps and shake it off and come on, man up and all those euphemisms that we say to people about why they shouldn't express distressing emotions, which is, you know, uh, not, not very useful because people have distressing emotions. Whether they express them or not doesn't mean they go away if they don't express them. They have them and they impact them quite um, significantly. But we don't have a good tolerance for that. It makes us uncomfortable. We tend to think that, oh, if somebody's talking about emotional distress, they're weak in some kind of way. When, in fact, psychologically, weakness is defined by uh, the brittleness of something, by how brittle something is. And sometimes very rigid things are brittle. So the Stoics who are holding it together when they crumble, will crumble completely. Mm. And the people who can express things and let off that steam in a certain way and you know, are, are less likely to crumble completely at the end of it. So that just formulation is, is, is incorrect at the, at the start of it. But it's more even correct. It's more incorrect when it comes to heartbreak because not only is just weighted out not necessarily the best advice, our mind will make us do all the wrong things. We literally will do the things that are worse for us. It's like if we got a cold and we'll decide, I'm going to wet my hair and go out into the freezing weather because that'll help. And it'll be like, no, that's the last thing you should do. But that's our impulse when we're heartbroken. So it's not just you have to be intentional. You have to be intentional, disengage from autopilot and re-engage in a very clear flight plan to navigate (laughs) out of those waters. I'm belaboring the metaphor, but you understand what I'm saying there? Like you really have to be very clear about the do's and don'ts when it comes to healing from heartbreak. 
Yes. Okay. So I know everybody's going to want to know. This is why this is why I really wanted to talk to you. It's like we need to know the tools. What are the tools for healing and getting through heartbreak? So you you've got steps, which is great. Which which is all in your book. But I think I would love it if we could go through giving people some practical, like what are the right things to do to get through it. So okay. the first, like one of the things you talk about. Which is not 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 where it's not all people are capable of no contact, but the like one some people are just like okay I need to be like, it's like you need a fix. That was the other thing, guy, that I learned about this. It was what, sorry, I, I mean I don't mean to go backwards, but you yeah. do talk about how it's almost like if you are, it's like you're addicted to love, you're addicted to this person, thinking okay I need a fix. Like so so no contact is so hard for so many people. When they're going through heartbreak. It, it's very, very difficult. The fixed thing is because, again, when we look at brain studies, we see that very similar mechanisms get up, get you know triggered in the brain when we're heartbroken, as you see getting triggered when, um, let's say, heroin addicts are withdrawing from, from opioids. Now, it, when heroin addicts are withdrawing from opioids, really nothing they do would surprise you. Like, they're, they're desperate people, and they're desperate, so that's why they're acting desperate and doing things that are very much out of character for them, behaving in ways that you just couldn't possibly understand yeah. um we're very much in a similar position at the beginning throes of, of heartbreak and that is why you will see some people doing crazy stuff that they wouldn't do otherwise literally sending 150 texts in a minute or or, or, or taking a bus for seven hours to surprise the person who actually told them they don't want to see mm-hmm. them again and you know doing you know begging proud people are begging and people offering money just for a phone conversation you know people get desperate and that's why their brains are withdrawing in that um sense um the no contact is there the, the no contact is is this what's your goal to recover from heartbreak it is minimize the amount of time you're thinking about that person yes. and minimize the pain that comes up when you do think about them that's just generically the goal to that end anything that makes you think about them more should be a no-no. Anything that makes you not think about them by distraction, by whatever it is, should be something to be considered. The And anything that reduces the pain should be considered. But we do things that actually really increase the likelihood of us thinking about the person. Mm. The no-contact yeah. rule, the idea is, if you're trying to minimize, you know, then, then don't meet them. Because when you do, it'll bring everything back. It'll be like peeling a scab of a wound. And so that's something we would try to avoid as difficult as it is. Um, And there's one other reason to avoid it. And I don't mean to to jump forward, but since we're on there, I want to, I want to mention this. People especially have trouble with that when it comes to social media. Yes. And in this day and age, I don't know why private detectives are still in business because (laughs) we don't, we don't need them. Pretty much everyone puts everything about their life online. You don't need to hire someone to follow your ex. Just look at the social media. Um, Create a fake account. Everyone does. But the point about that, the problem um, with that is what you will see because of the nature of social media is very curated images and videos of them having a good time, being in a good place, being out with friends, laughing. And you're at home crying you haven't changed clothes for three days you haven't eaten and they're at a party it just feels so incredibly hurtful and cruel how could they not care about me now there's reasons for that but one of them 
is that they started thinking about the breakup way before you heard about it. That's natural. So they're much further ahead. They did the breaking up. And it doesn't mean they don't miss you or that they're not thinking about you or they're not concerned about you. Mm. They're not showing that in that photograph. And so everything you get is so misleading and it's so hurtful. It's really going to set you back and it's very tempting. So the only way to not get tempted is to unfriend, hide, block, whatever you need to do, even if it's temporarily, so that you're not spending your time living through them to just see where they are when that's just reinforcing over and over again yeah. the, the strength of that association, which you want to diminish. Yeah. You said it, it's you want to minimize the stage time they get in your head right. just because you want to be thinking about them less and less. And by yes. doing all of these things that you are actually – you're, you're giving yourself that gift because <laughs> like, 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 like you said, right. This also includes, um, taking their picture, you know, taking pictures down of, of them right in your house and those reminders. Well, it's not just about reminders in fact, because taking the pictures down is, is in part is about reminders, but in part it's about, you need to redefine yourself yes. and your life Redefine without your life. them. And so you need to reestablish yes. spaces that are yours, not yours shared, not theirs. And yes. so you want to take down a picture and put a, put a picture of your dog up, put a picture of a good friend of your grandmother, whatever it is, but don't, you know, don't have, it's going to be enough reminders of them around to begin with. You want to minimize them. And so don't necessarily have the glamour photos. Now, if that doesn't bother you, if, if you're aching, but you're not in that desperate mode, then fine, you can keep them up if that's not causing distress. But for the people who are feeling very desperate, who just want that fix, who just want something, that's not going to help them in yeah. the initial stages. So another thing you talk about, that how we can go, how we can heal ourselves from heartbreak is um, social support, how important social support is. And when somebody's going through emotional turmoil, a lot of us, is it is it not true that a lot of us tend to I guess it depends on the person, but to isolate. And that's not like, that's the opposite of what you should do. Right. So it depends. In other words, there are some people who are not that comfortable talking about their feelings or sharing it with friends that they would rather, regardless of what they're upset about, they would rather kind of like take an evening to deal and then go, and then they'll call the friend they can go and watch a film with or uh, do something with. So they actually can have company, but not talk about it. Yes, so social yes. support for those people doesn't have to come in the, let me, you know, gut myself and show you my broken heart and talk about it ad nauseum. Um, it, for those, it can be, I need a distraction. But that's social support as well. That's yes. some people. For most people, they do need to talk about it. They need to get their arms around it. They need to try and understand it. They need to try and process it. They need to make sense of it in some kind of way. We do that by talking. We want the hug from the friend. We want somebody compassionate. We want somebody understanding. We want somebody who's going to validate our feelings and make us feel um, you know, just supported and just yes. validated. Like they get how distressed we are when we're really upset about something. And we can talk to someone who lets us know that they truly do get how upset we are. It's very, very, you know, it's very cathartic. We, we, it, yes. it actually does ease. And so we want those people around. We want to be able to talk to them. And this research is that that's very, very helpful um, when we're in the throes of that, that that support really makes a difference in terms of how quickly we recover. Yes. So what about, um, so I'm going to quote this, this quote of yours about compassion fatigue. 
this is something that I was like, whoa, I've never, I know that this exists and I like, you could see it happening, but I like how you put it. You were talking about how there's a preconceived notion we all have about when someone should be over the other person. And there is a moment when that compassion fatigue sets in, we go from being supportive to resentful in a moment. And I thought that is, yeah, I could see that happening, right? You Let's say you've got a friend or a family member, somebody that's been going through a breakup and time is going, time's ticking on and on and on. And it doesn't seem like they're, they are recovering from this heartbreak. It seems like it's the same story being told over and over again. And you go from, you know, I, I'm there for you to being like, you got to get over this. <laughs> so it's like compassion fatigue, right? Yeah, because what, what happens is they might three months into it, they might go back and go like, but they had sent me that text message the day before. Now they had mentioned this text message mm-hmm. 30 times already. You've been through, yes, they sent you the text message because they weren't ready to tell you. And then they were ready to tell you. They told you, but the text message was the day before. So they said, yes, love you because they weren't telling you yet. Not because they were in love with you the day before. And then they fell out of love with you overnight. That's You've been through it. But again, they'll say, but they sent me that text message and you'll be like, oh my goodness, we've been through this. Now, what happens when you're a compassionate person, when you're an empathetic person, and there's somebody that you care about that's really hurting, it distresses you. Yes. You're upset for them. You're not, you know, it's very difficult to shrug it off. And like, you know, someone you care about is really suffering. And so that it, it's a, you know, it, it's difficult. So, but you're there for them because that's the deal. That's what friendship and kindness and compassion is that you, you should be there from them in this moment. But there's this tacit agreement that we have. There's this tacit understanding that we have in which we kind of assume that, yeah, I'll be here to support you and you do your best to move forward. Mm. And that's the deal. But when you feel they're not moving forward and you, by your own very subjective, you know, timeline, even maybe unconscious, people are not even aware that that's what's going on. They just feel the thing. Um, when you feel like, oh my God, now we're going back to three months ago. They haven't moved forward. I've given all this, I've experienced all this vicarious distress by being with them. And now we're back to where we were three months ago. Like, so all those conversations we had didn't matter to mm-hmm. them or didn't count. And they were so difficult for me. That's where that resentment comes from. And there's part of it that is fair if that's the case. And people do have to be aware that some friends, and some friends might also be like, I got over my breakup way quicker, so why can't they? Like, there's all kinds of things that might be going on that make people impatient. But just what you find is that that person who was so willing to embrace you suddenly seems a little put off or mm. a little annoyed because they're, they've hit that wall of compassion fatigue and now they're just starting to feel annoyed and resentful that you're not moving on when they've done everything they should be doing and you're not doing, quote, unquote, your part. Yeah. So one of the things you do talk about is, which I think is just such a common, you you see this all the time, you practice, I'm sure, but um, how when you break up with somebody, one of your tools is that you you have to stop idealizing the person and your relationship. You got to get more real about like this, because we all do that. We all tend to be like, you know, he or she was the best or they were the best person ever. And they're not even remembering (laughs) all of the other things that weren't all that great. So can you like, how does our brain trick us in this way? And what can we do about that? Because I love your, I love, we have to get into the list. That's such a good one, guys. So let's talk about that later. What our, what our brain does is it kind of, it's, it, it just, we tend to, you know, and it's not just the images we get are these idealized images when people sometimes in sessions will show me on their phone, 
but look how in love we were. And, yeah. and they're flipping through their pictures, but they just went, there was a picture with that person looking very much not in love. There's a picture of them looking furious at that person. They skipped through those quickly to get to the ones in which they happen to both look very much in love. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's a very idealized curated version. I've had patients and I'm sure people who are listening have had friends that on, you know, on one week were saying to them, I can't stand them anymore. I really need to break up. This is not for me. I have so many doubts. And the week later they get dumped and they're like, they were the best thing ever. Where am I going to find them again? And his friend is like, mm-hmm. you weren't sure you even wanted to be with them last week. How did they become the best thing ever now that they broke up with you? No, I realize. And but that's something our mind does. We have to be aware of it. And we have to be aware that it's inaccurate. Because mm-hmm. again, if our goal is to get over the person and to make it hurt less, the more we build them up to be the perfect, the only one for us, my soulmate, my, my one and only, that's going to make it hurt much more. And again, it's fundamentally inaccurate. Yes. It's just not true. Yep. And so what you need to do is to balance the idealized perceptions out with more realistic ones. And since your brain is going to bombard you with the idealized version, my suggestion is make a list mm-hmm. of all the ways in which they weren't ideal, all the ways in which they were annoying, all the <laughs> qualities they had that you weren't a fan of, all the way they were in a relationship, because there's the person and, and, and the flaws they had, and there's the relationship and how they treated you in that relationship. And those flaws make a list of all the compromises you make, all the friends you barely saw because they didn't really get along with a friend and the things you stopped doing because they weren't into them. All those things to remind you that there was a lot of compromise because there always is. There are a lot of things that you stop doing or people you stop seeing as much because there's always conflicts there. There are a lot of very difficult moments. There are a lot of things that were serially annoying to you or upsetting to you or, or disappointing to you. Um, Remind yourself of all of those, make a list. And then when your mind goes to like, but they were the one and only and my soulmate and there'll never be another, go through your list and remind yourself as often as you need. Yeah. But no, they were a regular human being, i.e. flawed, i.e. they had some good and they had some bad and the relationship had good and it had bad. Stop focusing on all the good. Yes. You go back to that list. Every time your mind tries to make everything a rosy picture, right? <laughs> yes. And by the way, and I say to people, some people say like, but there's nothing on my list. I don't have anything. And I'm mm-hmm. like, here's the answer. Go ask your friends. There's a lot they've been dying to tell you and they haven't. They'll be very wow. happy to help you flesh out your list quite substantially. <laughs> I'll help you build your list. It's all good. <laughs> so the other thing you talk about is filling the voids. Because, you know, I think about you, there's you know, a breakup can be so incredibly damaging in the fact that, you know, um, let's say you're married and you've got kids and, you know, you're, you were married to that person's family, just as they were married to your family. We're not just marrying one person. right? Um, and so you've got that whole dynamic where you're just like that is heartbreaking so you're grieving that so or like you talk about in your book you've got clients that were just like okay they're they stopped going to all their favorite restaurants that they used to go with their partner because well that's a lot of restaurants let's just say or so you talk about filling the voids um so can you can you talk about that please guy yes we we lose much more than a relationship when we use yeah. a relationship certainly if it's been a long-term relationship or had any kind of length and substance to it, because we're going to lose a subset of friends. For some people, they're going to lose a very big subset of friends, if not all their friends. Sometimes people, you know, just go with the friends of the other person. And then when they lose that person, they lose everyone. They might've had relationships with family and extended family. So all of those people now 
uh, go. Um, so there can be huge voids socially, familial-wise, emotionally, but there are even very basic things like our self-definition. You know, a lot of people in a relationship start to, how was your weekend? Well, we did this. And mm-hmm. how was your vacation? Well, we went on that. We become a we in a relationship. Mm-hmm. And then you go to being an I. So even mm. your sense of self mm-hmm. has to shift. Weekends. And for a lot of people were like, do we have plans for the weekends? We might or we might not, but I'm not going to be by myself. I'm with my my partner. So, so you know, like my weekends were taken care of one way or the other. And now suddenly there's this empty 48 hours with no one, unless yes. you make it, unless you make a plan, unless you do something which you're not really going to be in the mood to do at the beginning. So you're coming home to an empty place where you were living. If you were living with someone, there's a lot of emptiness, a lot of voids, both physical, social, familial, emotional, you know, the, 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 the empty drawers where they had clothes and the, you know, the spaces on the wall where they had pictures and their food that was in the fridge because they use that milk and you use this milk. And there's all these things now that, you know, this emptiness, you know, used to go to these, this was our favorite brunch place. I don't want to go there now because it doesn't feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. So, so there's so much active work that needs to be done in the rebuild. Mm. And this is why I'm saying just thinking that you just wait it out. No, there's rebuilding to be done. That doesn't, yes. it will happen laturally, slowly sometimes, but it just extends the pain of it. The sooner mm. you can rebuild and feel like your life is fuller again and that you're reconnecting with friends that you've lost touch with or making new ones or pursuing old hobbies or finding new ones or finding, you know, you know, reconnecting to family members of your own that maybe went by the wayside because you always went to their place for the holidays and da, 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 da. all of that has to be very thoughtful and very intentional. But when you do it, and by the way, of course, it's difficult to do because you're hurting and you'd rather just be in denial and hope they come back and all of that. But when you get around to the rebuilding you can really see progress in your recovery mm-hmm. because you're actually doing the things that you need to make your life feel meaningful and full again, even if it'll take a while for that meaningful and full feeling to happen. Yes. Oh, I really like that. So you talk about, um, this is, I think, very important to most people when, you, when, they're, break, when, when they're broken up with, is understanding the why. I need to know why. But you say, um, this is this is good because you say all breakups are practically blindsides. <laughs> so um, unless you've really been, you know, you've been having a lot of problems for a long time, and you've been talking about it over and over again, it's finally can't do this. Well, that's probably it is that happens a lot. But you say people don't typically break up over cornflakes in the morning, right? And they've been thinking about it for a while and planning it, and. You, 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 I, I saw this video that you had, um, you, you said something in the journey interview that 99% of why breakups happen are the most common ways or re- that people break up. Can we you talk about that guy, please, before we talk about yes. getting closure about the why? Yes. So, so first of all, uh, you know, we, we, we tend to want to make sense of our experiences as people. That's, that's a, yes. that's an impulse we have to understand. So certainly when something's very dramatic and very traumatic, we want to understand what happened. It's a fair question. Here's why it's not a good question. Um, number one, uh, yes, there's sometimes that a couple will get into a big fight and in that fight will say, you know, we're done. But that's not usually how it happens. And even when you're talking about breaking up, the moment that happens, the moment the person decides to do it, again, it usually requires some planning. 
it's it's very impulsive to say it and like, well, wait, where am I going to stay tonight? And how we people think it through, they figure it out. Mm-hmm. They start doing like taking you know some clothes aside and putting them at the friend's place to squirrel away so that first night they can go and have somewhere to be. Like people actually do put quite a bit of thought into it and often quite a bit of consideration for the other person about the timing. But that's why it'll seem like a blind side because they'll announce it when it's when they've decided to announce it, not when you know. And, and that'll always seem a little bit unnatural for most uh, mm, cases. Mm. Some people say to me, like, I want to I wanna have another conversation. I want to ask them. They, I want them to tell me why they broke up with me. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. God forbid they actually tell you. Because what they're going to tell you um, is the stuff that actually wasn't the reason. They're going to mm. just start naming all their pet peeves and everything they didn't like. And that's never the reason. Because no. you've had those all along. The reasons are, and here's why they're so not sexy or interesting. <laughs> boring. Because right? they are, they are boring. They're like, the person never really fully committed. The person drifted emotionally over time and didn't tell you till there was a big uh, disconnect. The person um, wasn't investing in the relationship and that made them vulnerable to invest in another person outside the relationship because they weren't investing in the relationship. The person just felt like their feelings weren't growing or that they're having a fine time, but it's not going to go there fully. And so mm-hmm. why keep wasting time? Like, I like you. I can spend a lot of time with you, but you're not the one I want to spend the rest of my life with. So, you know, it's arbitrary, but let's just break up uh, at this time. Yep. In other words, it's all those things where it just feels so unsatisfying because mm-hmm. when you hurt that much, your mind is telling you there's got to be a very big reason for that. It's got to be a big wow, that when you hear it, you'll go, oh, wow. And even when you do hear it, it's never a wow. It's more like a, because there's nothing you can do about the emotional drifted or never fully committed or fell out of love or like, it's just not, you know, right. And so, and so most people won't convey that. They won't necessarily even know. They'll just know they're not feeling it. So this, this exploration can take us, you know, through all, down all these rabbit holes, which again, there's more time spending thinking about them, giving them more space in our mind when we're trying to do the opposite. Exactly. So you, what you do suggest people do, if, they, if they're just not accepting, and that's the, the thing you talk about in the book, about you're giving an example of the client who they went on a weekend together and she was convinced that the reason he broke up with her during the vacation, or maybe when they got home, I can't remember, was because she had done something wrong on the vacation. And he's like, no, nothing happened. Like, I just... I have to be done with this relationship, whatever his reason was. I fell out of love, or I'm no, I'm not in love with you. That was what he said to her, but in she couldn't case, accept yes. it. She could not accept it. Right. She wanted a bigger reason. She wanted something else to explain, but she's right. probably never going to get that. And so, what do you suggest in that case? It's like you say you have to decide on your own reason, and then you have to move on. Like it's like you have to have some sort of closure in your own mind. Yeah, you need to, like, in, in that case specifically, and I talk about that, I think, in the book, and I don't have to talk about that breakup in the TED Talk, but it's in the book. And the, in that case, my un- best understanding was he he didn't fully feel in love. He was planning to break up. They had that weekend plan. He didn't want to not do it before the weekend. So they yes. went on the weekend. He waited a few days, and he did it then just strategically. But he, he liked her a lot. He clearly mm-hmm. cared about her. He just didn't cross that threshold, you know. But for her, she thought he was going to propose on that weekend. And so yes. for her, it was like she was building up. She was like seeing all the good stuff. And then that came such a devastating, she was sure something must have happened. And every time he was telling her no, but she was sure. And she spent so much time unnecessarily 
coming up with all these conspiracy theories and ideas and maybe this and maybe that and what's he not telling me and and it's like nothing it's yes. just there's nothing there except he didn't feel it and he and and con- and then you look at the behavior was that consistent with his behavior was he generally a kind person was he generally a good yes he, he, you know he wasn't a you know an unpleasant person he was he did care for her he did love her there's a lot of behavior was like that but you know, it, it went up and then it plateaued and it didn't quite get to that point where he felt this is it. And that's why he broke up. And for her, that was so difficult to accept because she had crossed that threshold yeah. and she thought he had, but he hadn't. And so, so in, in, the, in her case, it, she had to learn to actually have her own, to deciding on a reason for her own self. Right. Right. So the, the suggestion I made to her and the suggestion I make to most people is, that, by the way, if somebody says to you, I just fell out of love, that's it then that's it. Sorry. Yeah. That is it. Accept it. Yes. And if somebody yes. says, you know, the, the version of it's not you, it's me, by all means, consider it them. Because yes. that's more likely. They're not just sparing your feelings. If it came out of the blue and you didn't get it, it is probably them. Yes. Right? Believe it. Um, Believe it. Right. Or if a lot of time the relationship was very conflictual, you were fighting a lot, you were this and that, and then they said, I don't know, I just did And like, we weren't getting along that well. It was a conflictual relationship. We didn't manage it well, we weren't able to fix it, there's the issue. So so that's the thing to you know to keep in mind and say to yourself, like, yeah, maybe they just never committed. Maybe they just fell out of love. Maybe they emotionally drifted and they didn't tell me and I didn't realize. It's unfortunate. It's painful. It doesn't take away the pain of it. Um, it doesn't mean that you're not really, really hurting, but it just yeah. means that there's not a unusual, incredible reason for it. Right. So can you please tell us about complicated grief? What is that? And how does that show up? In- so, so complicated Sorry, grief and grief in general is that we expect people to, you know, depending on the, on the loss to, to, to experience, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the general milestones of grief and to go through it. But we expect within six months, you know, plus a year, et cetera, that people will start to move past the initial stages of grief, will be able to start to move on, i.e. start to rebuild, reconstitute their lives. This is about grief and loss, whether it's a heartbreak, whether it's a, it's a relative, a spouse, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and with some people, you don't see that moving on. You see them still very much actively grieving. Grief, true grief never really goes away. It turns into a duller ache that we carry with us and we go on despite it, etc. But you see them, they're not going on despite it. They're carrying it with them very much in very mm-hmm. clear ways. And that's when we consider the grief to be complicated because it's not, it's not getting better in ways that it should. And we see that with heartbreak when people are, you know, two years later, they still haven't dated. They don't feel ready. They don't, you know, they're still lamenting and even if they're not regaling their friends with the same sagas all the time they're just not back yes and 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 that's a problem if it's like if a lot of time has passed and you're not seeing a steady progression i don't mean day to day but over time um then it might be a sign that that you need to speak with someone because you're you know moving forward sufficiently yes there was a community question about this and the community question is what is the solution for someone in your life who has been heartbroken for 25 years and still speaks negatively about that person? What is that? Is that heartbreak unresolved? And how do I help this person in my life? <laughs> Maybe it is that they need to, they really do need to have, obviously they need to work with somebody like you 
that would right that would help them through this if it's been 25 years so i i don't i don't want to presume that I, from that little bit of information i can say that somebody has complicated grief or, mm. or something like that but if and some people still say no i'm still heartbroken and what they mean by that is yeah, i still feel an ache when i think about it but the question is if it's complicated grief it's not just that they're heartbroken but that heartbreak is still impacting their lives mm in specific ways 25 years later. There are still mm. things they do or don't do. That person is still in their head mm-hmm. on a very regular basis when they obviously should not be at that time. And if they still speak with, with again, anger depends on the anger. If it's passionate anger, that's always something we associate with something that's more recent and more current and more alive in that way. So if it's if they get passionately angry about the person so many years later, yes, there's the ways in which they haven't fully healed potentially um and 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 that they might need to um address it because you know it's not as if somebody says it's been 25 years it still hurts to think about but i don't think about it a lot and i have been able to move on and i have been in another other relationships and that's fine that's different than i'm still heartbroken and it's really still impairing my my functioners my functioning and my happiness in substantial ways that's a problem yes so the obviously a, a very important step to um, helping yourself through heartbreak is you need to be willing to let go. At the end of the day, that is so very important, right? So what are ways that people can let go? Look, it, it's it's some people said no, I've let go, and then when I mm. talk to them, I'm like, no, you haven't, mm. and I know you haven't because you're really just biting time, like playing for time, thinking maybe they'll have a come to, you know, moment where they realize they made a mistake. Or you're not really, you know, you're going on dates, but you're not really going on dates. You're not really open to actually meeting someone. Mm. Um, you haven't changed your status on social media, so I don't know what that's about. You know, like there are certain ways. So letting go is accepting that it's over. Yes. And that's what a lot of people struggle with. And the, and if you ask them, do you accept that it's over? They'll have a really hard time saying yes, because they mm. don't want to. And so they'll say, well, yeah, but I'm like, no, 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 not but. Do you accept that this will not happen now and in the future? Because the idea of it's over is not, well, maybe one day, maybe in two years, maybe in six months. The assumption is no, never. Mm-hmm. That's what over means. It's done with this person. And that's very difficult sometimes for people to endorse, but it's a decision you have to kind of make. At some point, you have to realize that you are suffering and you're extending your suffering by not coming to that reality. Yes. And unfortunately, a lot of people, when they do the breaking up in order to not hurt the person or they think they're doing them a favor, they'll add qualifiers that give people hope in that sense. And they'll say things like, I don't know, it's not the right time for me, but maybe if we met in five years, who knows? And that person is like, I can wait five years in their head. Mm, and like, oh wow. no, God forbid you wait five years. Yeah. And, and, but they'll say it to me in a session like, you know, but five years, you know, I can date people, but I'm just like, like you don't want to be walking around available for this person who didn't want you yes. for five years. You don't want to do that for five months or five weeks even. That's right. And so, and so you really have to be compassionate to yourself and do the right thing for yourself and understand that all you're avoiding by not letting go is that, you know, that there'll be a spike in grief when you do. But 
it'll, it's a spike. It goes mm. up and it goes down sharply, that spike. You'll be able to then come back to where you are now, but in a healthier way. But that spike is scaring you. That l- truly coming to terms with it's never, I've lost this person forever, is scary. And that's what holds people back. But, but they, you really need to get over that because that fear is causing you a lot of pain and extending something that really shouldn't be extended and causing you a lot of suffering you don't need to have. Yeah. So you talk about rebuilding our self-esteem through self-compassion. You say the worst thing we can do is internalize and become self-critical, right? So the opposite of being self-critical is self-compassion. Um, can you tell us about like ways that somebody can practice this daily? Because you talk about mindful meditation, a lot of beautiful ways that we can start re- like we have to stop, start thinking in different ways rather than right. being so self-critical. Right. It's very natural to become self-critical yes. Yes, after a breakup is. and especially even after a yeah. minor rejection because when our feelings yes. get hurt, again, in our efforts to understand what happened, we will start to review all our faults and shortcomings. Surely the answer's there. Surely mm-hmm. uh, I was not enough of this or too much of that or whatever it was. So it's a very natural thing to do. It's unfortunate because it's literally kicking your self-esteem when you're down. Mm-hmm. It's literally like taking a knife to a wound and deepening it. It's like it's just the wrong thing to do. But it's it's very, you know, that, that negative, punitive self-talk. I'm such a loser. I'm an idiot. I'm ugly. I'm, it's like all the people just say horrific things to themselves. Self-compassion is the opposite of that. Because self-compassion is what you would say to somebody you really cared about who was in your situation. Mm-hmm. So the exercise to practice self-compassion, just a basic exercise, is to imagine that your very dear friend, sibling, somebody you truly care about was in the exact situation that you're in and saying to themselves and aloud to you the very horrible things you are saying to yourself in your own head, what would you say to them? Mm. And you would probably say to them things like, look, no, it's not you. They told you that it was them and you tried really hard here. And I know it's incredibly painful, but what you need now is to remind yourself of all the wonderful qualities you have that somebody else will appreciate once you get over this. And you're so great in this way and you're kind in that way. And it's okay to feel like crap now. It's fine. That happens. But, you know, but you deserve hugs, not barbs you know like you that's what you would say to a friend you would really should, like you would not tolerate their stream of you know put downs and and and, and negative and self-hate you you would it would be hard, hard for you to be like no 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 and you would correct it and yes. that's what you need to do for yourself you need to visualize that externalize that and then restate that to yourself and it's going to feel hokey to do it it's going to feel really weird when your insides and your head is telling you, I'm a loser, I'm an idiot, I'm not this, I'm not that, to actually pause that and go, you know what? No, I have so much going for me and there's so much I have to offer. And da, da, da. It'll, feel like, it'll feel like just you roll your eyes. I don't care. Roll your eyes, but say that to yourself yes. because the research is incredibly clear that self-compassion will help you heal much more quickly. Mm. Self-compassion will absolutely help you um, move forward, and and um, and 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 it'll, it really is the, the the best tonic that you can have, mm-hmm. and um, and it's what you deserve, and it's what you would give a friend. Unfortunately, we tend to treat our friends much nicer than we treat ourselves a lot of the time, um, but 
but that's the best thing. Um, and the forms of meditation that involve self-compassion, mindfulness meditation does. Um, and that's a wonderful thing as well. But even if you're not meditating, just to have that orientation of I deserve sympathy, I deserve compassion, I deserve, you know, to be loving toward myself rather than savaging myself is very important. Yeah. So we have, um, <clears throat> pardon me, another community question. The question is, I have a very close friend that is currently going through a lot of heartbreak. Her marriage of over 15 years is over. And her, she and her children are staying in the family home and her ex has moved out. She's spending a lot of time at home on her own when she's not with her children. How is she supposed to start to heal while she's surrounded by the environment and the life they shared together and also co-parent? As a close friend, what advice can I give her? So it's very difficult when you are getting divorced and you have kids and there's, there is no option for a no-contact rule. You have to co-parent. Yes. Yes. Um, but a couple of things you can say, and I don't know how, you know, I mean, if this is very, very recent, then you just stay with support and compassion at the beginning. Uh, it sounds like a little less, uh, recent somehow that was a flavor I got. Um, you, you want to, you can help a, by being supportive and by being understanding, you can help by being practical also and saying, look, if you have to do the handoff and you always feel crappy after you give the handoff, so um, I'll be ready on the phone. So just call me the minute you hand it off and feel free to vent and, you know, et cetera, mm. and I'll be there for you. You can strategically kind of do these things. But you can also remind your friend that um, there's a rebuilding that needs to be done. And part of the rebuilding is really transitioning your thinking of this person from, you know, and it's going to take time, but just having the orientation that you need to start thinking of them not as a as a loved one, not as a family member, but as a co-parent. A co-parent, i.e. business partner for the business of raising children. It's a much more distant relationship. It should be a much more transactional relationship, you know, and and that you want to try and get in a groove in which you can do that well for your children. And so the more you can get yourself into that mindset of this person is no longer the support of my love and my feeling attracted and my feeling needed and my feeling appreciated. They knew they no longer have to offer that to me. They no longer want to, and I have to find that elsewhere. But what they do need to offer me is cooperation, participation, partnering when it comes to dealing with our kids in the best way possible for our kids. So sometimes when you have that mindset, it helps you orient a little bit towards how you need to shift your perception of, of the ex. But because they're going to be around a lot and because you can't get away from them, then you do need to do a lot of rebuilding in the other areas of your life because that's your break. You know, if the, if you share yes. custody in any kind of way, every time the kids are not with you, you get to be a single person again, which you haven't been for 15 years. Mm -hmm. And to try and reconnect to the, I can go out with my single friends, I can go out, you know, I can flirt with, with people in a bar or in a club, or I can do this, or I can join a book group, or I can, like, whatever it is, I can put myself out there in ways that I couldn't. And, you know, there's this thing about custody that you feel terrible that you don't have your kids when you don't have them. But there's a lot of freedom that comes with those moments where you don't, which you would never have had had you not gotten, had, had you not separated. So, um, you know, to try and in time take advantage of the freedom that came with that breakup so that you can really explore things and get back to yourself in serious ways. Yeah. Well, I really, I, I love this. You know, you said that word rebuilding throughout this interview, and I, I think that is so important because heartbreak it can be so devastating. It is for many people, but once you, like, if you can employ all these things that we've just been talking about that you teach, 
around healing yourself and changing your mind and taking it's like a proactive approach it is it's yes, not just like much. you said time does heal however with being when you're proactive you, you you can speed the healing process along and that's what that's really what you're teaching right guy you can speed it but you can make it more thorough like i said sometimes mm. a lot of people will kind of in time move on but they didn't really rebuild they didn't reconstitute mm-hmm. from the inside they didn't get in touch with who am i now and who do i want to be and i have to answer questions and they rush through it um some people i know would with somebody for 20 years and try to go back to exactly the lives they had 20 years ago and i'm like you've changed over 20 years should have mm-hmm. certainly and so just why don't take the time to ask yourself these questions before you answer them with answers that are 20 years out of date. So yes. we have to be patient, but it's a process, but the rebuilding needs to happen from the inside and from the outside in every possible way. Yeah. So we, re- we have to, we're, we're coming to a close here, but something I was, I was reminded of when we were just talking, we've been talking, Dr. John Gray said to me a few weeks ago, he was talking about how, when his wife passed away and how incredibly devastating that was and how his heart broke. Of course it broke. Um, and he said now that he has, he was, he was very proactive through, through his healing process. And he says, you know, he is with a new partner now. He's very happy. He's always going to be, um, have, uh, you know, so much love for his wife, his that passed. But what he said, which I thought was so profound is that his, he feels that his heart, even though it broke now it's, it's healed and it's bigger. Have you had that experience with your clients that you've worked with that, like you can go through something so heartbreaking and at the end of it, once you're healed, you feel like actually you're stronger, you're better. You've got a bigger heart. Have you heard that before? I've heard it many times for yes. different reasons. I mean, there are all kinds of different reasons. One of them might be that a lot of people make compromises that diminish them in a relationship. They're not even fully aware of how much they diminish them. But then suddenly when they're not with that person and they're emancipated and they're mm. rebuilt, they suddenly realize there's a lot of aspects of me that I was not bringing forth and that I was not living. And now I'm living a much fuller life that's much more authentic to who I yes. am, much more satisfying because of it. So, there, but, but there are different reasons, but there are all kinds of reasons that can happen. We know from trauma that people can reconstitute in a way that we consider it post-traumatic growth. In other words, that they can mm. actually grow by finding meanings, by finding purpose, by identifying things about themselves, by accepting the resilience that they have, recognizing their strengths. So there's all kinds of, when we go through something, um, we can always come out the other side stronger if we try to go about it wisely. Yes. Well, well, I recommend everybody read your book. I, I loved it. And I, your TED Talk, all your TED, your TED Talks are fantastic. And you're so funny. I didn't realize that you, that you were um, a comedian before, before your life as a doctor. Is that I wouldn't right? call myself a comedian. I, wouldn't, I wasn't fully a comedian. I did, I did dabble in stand-up for a few years. That's great. You know, so there were a few years where I was definitely going out regularly to, to do stand-up, but I would never... Yeah classify myself as, as crushing uh, that threshold. Well, I love your comedian. Humor, I did guys. it while I had yeah. a practice. And so that was on the side. Oh, that's so great. Well, you, you have a fascinating, fascinating story. And I love how you talk about your twin brother. And, you know, there's so many really, really good stories you share about your work as a doctor. And you're just doing such great work in the world. And so I really thank you for sharing your wisdom and, um, and for being with us today. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Please visit realloveready.com to become a member of our community. Submit your relationship questions for our podcast experts at reallovereadypodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We read everything you send. 
Be sure to rate and review this podcast. Your feedback helps us get you the relationship advice and guidance you need. The Real Love Ready podcast is recorded and edited by Maya Anstey. Transcriptions by otter.ai and edited by Maya Anstey. We at Real Love Ready acknowledge and express gratitude for the Coast Salish people, the stewards of the land on which we work and play, and encourage everyone listening to take a moment to acknowledge and express gratitude for those that have stewarded and continue to steward the land that you live on as well.